Father, we're grateful for this morning, for this time of worship. God, your name is beautiful. Your name is wonderful. There is none like you. Lord, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would encourage us and challenge us to be your church, to be the light of the world, to be a voice of hope. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Psalms and looking at these wonderful prayers and songs over the last few weeks. And uh, today we're going to continue to look at the Psalms and look at Psalm 45. It's, it's a wedding song. And as I was reading through the Psalm this week, I, I started thinking back to uh, the time period when Annette and I uh, got married and, and those days leading up to our, our wedding day some uh, 20 years ago. And um, I just remember the happiness and the joy um, I was her focus, and, and she was my focus. We, we were, uh, had each other's attention during that time, and, and, and it didn't matter what, what else was, was going on, whether, whether it was uh, uh, even a bad thing going on. Nothing was going to derail us. Nothing was going to uh, get our focus uh, off of this, this wonderful time, and this time of happiness and, and joy. And, and, man, it was. It was, it was amazing and, and so thankful uh, for that, that season. And, and I just remember that being just a, an, an amazing time. And it, it got me thinking, I, I remember in the, in the movie Elf with, with Buddy the Elf after his, his date. Uh, I don't know if you remember, he, he comes running into the office uh, of his dad and, and they're in an important meeting and he comes running in, throws his hat, he's twirling, he's jumping around and he says, I, I'm in love and I'm, uh, I'm in love and I don't uh, care who knows about it. And he wanted to tell everybody and, and, and that's kind of the, the giddiness, the, the happiness, the, the joy. Uh, I remember that, that we felt during that time and, and nothing was going to get in our way. And, and it's what we were focused on. And, and man, what a, what a happy time. And, and this is what God wants for us in Jesus. He, he wants us to have joy and, and happiness filling our heart and life over Jesus that God wants us to have joy in Jesus, even in the midst of, of hard times. Uh, e. Stanley Jones, in his book, Abundant Living, observed uh, that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But instead, in delight, they would say, look who has come into the world. And I, and I think that's a, a great attitude. It's a great way to uh, look at the early Christians, and, and we should have that same attitude. And Psalm 45, in this love song, in this wedding song, there is nothing else like it in the entire book of Psalm. It, it's a song about a wedding, the groom who is king and his bride, which reflects the historical situation of ancient Israel. Uh, ultimately, though, that this psalm is speaking of something greater. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says about this psalm, he says, some here see Solomon in Pharaoh's daughter only, and therefore they're short-sighted. Others see both Solomon and Christ, and they are cross-eyed, Spurgeon said. Well-focused, spiritual eyes see Jesus only in this psalm. Or if Solomon be present at all, it must be like those hazy shadows of passerbys which cross the phase of the camera and therefore are dimly traceable upon a photographic landscape. Interesting by Spurgeon, but I love his point. When we look at this psalm, we see Jesus 
And the writer of Hebrews did in Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, as he quoted this psalm, he says, But of the Son of God, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Fixed on Jesus, speaking of Jesus using Psalm 45. And so we're encouraged here in Psalm 45 to behold and to see Jesus, our glad and happy King, and also the church, his bride, who he makes overflow with joy both now and forever. So let's dig in the text this morning. Let's look at verse one here as we see a heart overflowing with Jesus from the very beginning. And the psalmist says, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I love this verse as it begins this psalm. The psalmist is overwhelmed with emotion. He's bubbling over. He's boiling over as his heart is full of joy and delight. And uh, it's because of this thought of the king, the, the groom who is going to marry his bride, who will be the queen. And so uh, this good theme that is overflowing and, and overwhelming him, um, I, I want us to think of this morning as the gospel, the gospel. And so is that our good thing? Does our heart overflow with joy over the gospel? And so this good theme is, is about Jesus. It's Messiah. Uh, it, it's the King of Kings. It's the bridegroom who has come to be united to his bride, the church. And so I want us to see that picture here. And I, I pray that's the good theme of our life, that that's the delight, that that's the happiness of our life. And so with his words, the psalmist is going to speak of Jesus, the King who has come and who is coming. And so with his words, he's going to paint a picture. He's going to paint a picture of Jesus and his church. And then verse 2, we, we begin this next section of the psalm with this praise to the king of lifting up the king. And in verse 2, it says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The psalmist here sees the king as this great man. Uh, the psalmist knew very well, and he was Handsome, he, he, he was well-liked, and, and one of the evidences was of his speech and his words. And so this is speaking of the great beauty of Jesus Christ and that there is none like him. If you look at all the other religions in the world, um, what, is, what, what are they about? They're about works. They're about what you can do uh, for that God or for that system of religion. Uh, but Christianity is different. Christianity is about grace, and that's what Jesus is about. Jesus is about grace. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christianity is about grace, because that is what Jesus is all about. And Jesus was about that in his words. His words were filled with grace. In fact, in Luke 4, 17 through 22, uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. He opened the book. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, Jesus did. He gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he, and he began to say to them, today this scripture 
has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who were speaking well of him and were wondering the gracious words which were falling from his lips. They were gracious words because that's who Jesus is. He is one of grace and his speech is as well. It was the words of Jesus that stopped Saul in his tracks in Acts 9 as Saul was persecuting the church. Uh, but with, with a word in Acts chapter 9, uh, we read in verse 4 that, that Paul or Saul falls to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice of Jesus, the voice of grace. And then Saul said back to Jesus, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. You see, Jesus dissolved his hard heart filled with hate and Saul turned to Christ, becoming the apostle Paul, a changed man. This is what Jesus' grace does. It changes people. This is what his gracious words do. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is our beautiful Savior. He's full of grace and he changes lives. And therefore, at the end of verse 2, it says, God has blessed you forever. The Father speaking uh, about the Son, that, that the Father has blessed Jesus forever, that, that by his people, uh, they may be blessed in union with him. And then look at verses 3 through 5 as this psalm continues, as it's lifting up the king, uh, this groom, uh, Jesus. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh, um, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Here is our king, Jesus, pictured as a warrior, ready for battle in all glory and all renown. And Jesus is the true champion of the church, and he is our only hope. He is mighty to save, leading the church against the demonic forces in this world now, and he will return again in the future to destroy evil once and for all. And Jesus is victorious, as it says here. As he came to die, raise again on the third day, overcoming death once and for all. And he came to us full of truth, gentleness, and righteousness to offer us this victory for ourselves found in him alone. And so we must simply come, must simply come to him in faith. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus comes and he comes aiming arrows as the psalmist speaks of. Arrows at the heart of people in both love and also in judgment and even in vengeance as well. But the aim is to convict, just like with the Apostle Paul, just like with us and our story, that, that some might be saved, the Lord willing. And so he comes in gentleness. He, he comes in truth and in righteousness, that our lives might be changed. And then look at verse 6. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
This clearly indicates that this psalm is speaking of the divine and sovereign King, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as it echoes the words from the Davidic covenant that God spoke to uh, King David, as it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 13, and also 16, it says that he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, as uh, God is speaking uh, specifically about David the king and, and his kingdom line that will uh, eventually lead to Jesus Christ. It says in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, Jesus' throne is forever, and it will never pass away. So what does this mean for us in the present? What does it mean for us even in the future? Um, for Jesus is king of the kingdom uh, of God and king, the kingdom of heaven, as we hear about in the Gospels. N.T. Wright says this, that the phrase kingdom of heaven does not refer to a place called heaven where God's people will go after death. Instead, it refers to the rule of heaven. That is of God being brought to bear in the present world. And so his reign here in this earth. George Eldon Ladd says that the word kingdom's uh, of heaven, primary meaning both in the Old Testament and New Testament is rank. It, it's about authority. It's about sovereignty exercised by a king. And so he continues to say that the kingdom of God is also the realm in which God's reign may be experienced. And so the word kingdom in scripture speaks to reign. And specifically here, it's speaking of God's reign, the, the reign of the Messiah, the reign of Jesus. It could be said that the kingdom of God is about the dynamic of God's kingship being applied as well. And so the biblical goal, this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which what we see here in verse 6 is speaking of Jesus as the king of a kingdom, is that God's sovereign reign in heaven would be manifested in his reign here on earth among men. And so what do we, we have with Jesus, with this idea of Jesus? Well, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And so what that meant for him in that context was, you know, don't expect uh, Rome to be overthrown right now. Don't, don't expect uh, that the kingdom of God is going to be set up on earth right now physically, that you're going to see it. Uh, in fact, he says, nor will they say, look, here it is. And this is in Luke 17. Or there it is. So, so you're not going to observe it. But listen to what he says. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. See, the kingdom of God, according to, to Jesus, was, was in their midst because he was there. He was present. You see, God's sovereign reign in heaven on earth is now mediated through Jesus Christ, who is, and as we have seen, the rightful king as the son of David. And so he is the arrival of the kingdom of God uh, in this new age, of this new age that has come. So what we have is fulfillment, as one will say, without uh, uh, consummation. And so the fulfillment is here. The great light has dawned, but the consummation is not here yeah, so you could say the kingdom of God is here because Jesus has come, um, but the fullness of it is not here yet. And so the age to come has begun, but this fallen age of the old age of sin and death, it, it still endures for a time. And we see that. We see that present today in many ways. And so the coming of the kingdom comes in two stages. First with Jesus as a suffering servant to atone for sin, later coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And so first he came on a donkey with a branch of peace and amnesty. Later he will come on a great white horse with a sword of judgment. So while the kingdom of God did come in Jesus' first coming, it came only in part. 
And so the full measure of the kingdom will come at Jesus' coming. And so when we think about the kingdom this morning here in verse 6, I want us to have that in mind. And so what is that kingdom marked by? And what does it mean for us? Look at verse 7 and 8 here in Psalm 45. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy. I love that phrase. Above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and, and aloes or uh, cassia or cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. And so Jesus' kingdom it is marked by what is right and what is good. And so Jesus is not neutral. He's not neutral on right and wrong. He, he loves righteousness and he hates evil and he hates sin. And so as the king of the kingdom marked by what is right, Jesus is full of joy Gladness and happiness, as we read here in 7 and 8. Jesus is the happiest of all. And guess what? His happiness spills in the universe. As the angels spoke about this to the shepherds, about Jesus coming in this way in Luke chapter 2.10, where they say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And so when you think of Jesus, I want you to think of him as the happiest one uh, in all the universe. He has the most joy. He is the happiest of all. And so Jesus' joy changes those who trust in him and those who submit their life to him. And his sovereign reign as Lord and King of their life, they share in his joy. They share in his happiness now and forever because uh, Jesus is most delightful to them, uh, literally to all the senses as we read about here with these fragrances. He is their delight. And so if Jesus is the happiest, Christians should be the happiest people, the most joyful people, the most, uh, the, the, the gladdest people in all the earth. And this means that we should see the living and doing of what is right, as it's mentioned here, the doing of what is good, meaning living in obedience as better and, and even more fun than the doing of bad, than the doing of evil, than the Living in disobedience, doing right and good is something we enjoy, we love to do. And so as Christians, we should be the most happiest people because Jesus is the happiest of all. And then look at verse 9. Kings, daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Every believing woman is spiritually King Jesus' daughter. I want you to hear that this morning. That's what I see in this verse. Women in Christ, you are highly valued. You are greatly loved. You are a daughter of the king. And so the psalmist is doing something here with verse 9 and 10. Uh, he's transitioning to speak of the bride. And, and I want us to think of the church because that's what we find in, in Paul's writing in Ephesians 5 as he intertwines um, this idea of speaking to the husband and, and the wife with the idea of Christ and his church, Christ and his bride. And so the psalmist does this here as, as well. And so the church shares the gladness and the happiness of Jesus, as we've seen. And they stand in his right hand here in verse 9, in gold from Ophir. What that means is they, they have value, they have wealth, because Jesus is their king, Jesus is their Lord. And we stand in his righteousness complete. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness in Him. And so we 
are at his right hand. And we're full of value and wealth because we stand in his righteousness. And then look at the king's bride, the church here in verse 10 and through verse 15. We're going to see this. It says, listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The psalmist clearly is addressing the bride. And we see this as the church, uh, as we mentioned just before in Ephesians 5 uh, as well. And so the psalmist calls the church here first to listen. It's a key word. In fact, if you were to circle a couple things here in verse 10 and 11, I, I would circle listen and I will cir would circle uh, forget. The, this idea of listen reminds me of Romans 10, 17, where it says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Um, listening is huge. Jesus said those who have ears, may, may they hear. Listening is big. And so our listening is to continue as we walk with Christ. We're to give attention, as the psalmist says here. We're to incline our ears, to lean in and to listen to God's word, to his teaching and to his wisdom, as it speaks about in Proverbs 4. And then the church is called to forget. You see, as a bride is exhorted to leave her former families, we read about in Genesis 2, to now be joined to her groom, to start a new family. So we as Christians are to break every tie to be joined with Jesus Christ, to, to follow him. And so we're to renounce the ways and, and the thoughts of this world to follow Jesus alone, uh, to be holy as he is holy, as Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 1. Jesus desires all of us and doesn't want us to have a little bit of him sprinkled here and there and, and, and then to, to have another foot in the world and to live according to the world. No, he wants us to desire him alone. For him to be Lord of our life, not a sprinkle here and there. And so we're to forget, we're to renounce all ties to the world and to follow him. And so let us worship him alone. Let us bow down to him as king and Lord of our lives alone. And as we are holy, living a life of worship, as we're called to in verse 11, unto Jesus, look what happens. In verse 12, it says, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. And so when the church shines bright in holiness and in, and in worship of Christ, as we see in the previous verse, they are influential. They're a powerful church for the glory of God in the world. In fact, in Matthew 5, 16, we're told, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's who the church is to be, is to be the glory of uh, the, the, the light of God in the world. And then in Acts 2 and verse 42 through 47, here we see this beautiful picture of the church, this community that's devoted to the word of God, devoted to prayer, uh, devoted uh, to uh, experiencing the Lord's communion together, remembering Jesus together, praying together. They were caring for one another, uh, loving one another. And then in verse 47, it says, um, they were together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You see, the church is to be influential for the glory of God in this world. And so in verse 12, the rich among the people will seek your favor. We're to have favor in the world among people as we live out God's will. 
And then look at verse 13 through 15. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. There again, the idea of gladness and happiness. They will enter into the king's palace. And so the church here is pictured as, as beautiful within, for truth and wisdom is on the inside and it, it is greater than any outward beauty. The church has been purified and renewed within and she shines brightly in this world. And those who are followers of Christ, the church, it says here, uh, it speaks of that this union one day of, of coming, uh, literally it says here in the king's palace. And, and so the church will be with Jesus one day forever. Not only that, but those who have... Uh, you have witnessed to, those you have shared Christ to, and who have come to Christ by faith will also be with Christ one day. What a beautiful picture here. Her companions who follow her will be brought to you. What a beautiful picture. What joy it will be when we're brought home to be with Jesus. A, a marriage feast it will definitely be. And then look at verse 16 and 17 as we wrap up the psalm. We see here the king's future. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Jesus, the Redeemer King, is the divine angel by whom many sons are, are brought forth to glory, as we read about in Hebrews 2.10. The picture here is fathers of faith are, are gone and home and glory with Jesus, but the seeds of grace by faith that they planted live on, and, and the life uh, or the line of grace is, is never extinct. And so Jesus' name, as it says here in verse 17, will be remembered in all generations. The peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. His name, his fame, his character, his, his person will be praised for. Ever. Nations will praise him forever. Psalm 4610 says to cease striving and know that I am God. God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, this is the goal. This is our purpose. As the bride of Christ, as the church, it is to make much of Jesus in the world. Jesus Church, I want you to hear this morning. He is king. May he daily be king of our life. We are his bride. And may we shine brightly for him in this world. And may his glory, may his great name and fame spread to every end of the earth. May his name be lifted high. And so let's pray to that end today that that as Jesus is our king, that we would be his church right where we're at, right where God has us, and that we would reflect his glory to the ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, we see clearly here our goal. Our goal is, is to live to magnify that our great king in and through our life that John Piper says that, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Jesus is the happiest of all. And, and we as his followers, as his bride, are to be filled with joy and gladness in this world. 
And as we delight in him or are satisfied in him, his name is made great right where we're at. May it be so. May it be so. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the people, God, praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. And may it be so with your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Rich family, so glad that you joined us this morning. Let us be the church in this world, glorifying God in all that we do, for he is king. And may we be glad in living for him. May we be the happiest people here on earth, no matter what we're going through, because Jesus is our king.